Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Among its many attributes, Sesame Street has been a wonderful gateway to the arts for children. Atlantan Layla Felder discovered her love for opera at two years old watching Sesame Street. And by the age of seven, she'd started a club, Kids Opera and Art Posse, which still encourages younger audiences to engage with the arts. The recent graduate of the Atlanta International School is also an actor and departs soon for college. Later in the hour, she'll tell us about being the youngest ever Met Opera Ambassador and inspiring other youth through her passion for the arts. Plus, speaking of music, our series of local musicians in their own words today features the band Young Antiques. First, photographer Ron Sherman has been an important fly on the wall in Atlanta for the last 50 years. He has photographed everyone from Hank Aaron to President Jimmy Carter to Mrs. Coretta Scott King. His works have been featured in major publications such as Time and Forbes. Collections of Sherman's prints are in the archives of Emery's Rose Library. And an exhibition of Ron Sherman's photos will open Monday and be on view through September 21st at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center. He joins me now via Zoom. Ron, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you very much. I'm glad to join you today. You have been prolific throughout the last five decades. From the many thousands of photos you've taken, how did you decide on the 25 to be included in this show at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center? Well, you're right. There were thousands of photos to consider. I got them down to 76 of what I thought were my favorites. And then I had a couple of my friends help me review to give me some ideas. And the final 25 were basically uh, what I felt were the most important pictures that I had made over the time. And most of them are editorial collection with a few commercial images included. Hmm. There is a powerful image of a Vietnamese farmer in this exhibition. I read that you volunteered to serve in the Vietnam War and that your photographs helped American soldiers and military commanders gain a better understanding of the layout of missions they were entering. Would you tell us more about your role in the military? Well, I volunteered to um, join the service and go into officer candidate school OCS for the Signal Corps. As it turned out, when it came time to graduate, you know, I got my 
Second Lieutenant Bars. I was assigned to a organization called the Aerial Reconnaissance Battalion and shipped to Vietnam there with a group of uh, men who were actually photo darkroom uh, workers who ran the lab at, in Vietnam for the pictures that were made by the Air Force and were uh, then sent over to the Army Intelligence uh, Aerial Reconnaissance Group. And my men gave them to the interpreters so they could determine what the commanders were looking for in terms of intelligence information. The problem with the Air Force photography is that it uh, took sometimes a day or more for the commanders to get these pictures. So I was asked as if I had the understanding of how to quicken up the process and Pentax had come out with a camera that was easy to use and came up with what I called the handheld camera program. We were able to uh, acquire these cameras and uh, lenses for each of the five divisions and train the aerial uh, observers to use these cameras and each division had a darkroom. So the uh, pilot would go up and the observer would take the pictures, bring them back to the, each division's darkroom. They all had one, process the pictures and make the prints. And the commanders could have pictures within a couple hours of requesting the mission and not maybe up to a day or so. And so that helped the whole process of getting the information that these commanders needed uh, in a timely manner. You have photographed some significant moments in Atlanta's history. The first time we spoke was about your photo of Hank Aaron hitting his 715th home run, which broke Babe Ruth's record. Ron, how has documenting Atlanta's history over the last 50 years impacted your relationship with this city? Well, I was fascinated with Atlanta in the uh, 60, middle 60s when I was at the University of Florida working, trying to stay out of the Army at the time. And Kodak had a large lab here, and I used to come up for meetings, and, and I just sort of fell in love with the city even back then. Uh, UPI was located in Atlanta. I had done a lot of work with uh, United Press International as a freelance photographer. And when I came to um, decide where to go after the Army, and then I went to graduate school at Syracuse for a couple of years, and the time was 70, early 70s, when photojournalism was sort of on the, uh, the downside, shall we say. But I always felt uh, Atlanta was the place to come, and I had some friends here. So we decided to move down here in 71. I was just fascinated by the city. I saw that it was a booming place and made a lot of friends, got a lot of great clients down here. And it just grew on me. Over time, I got involved in doing a lot of aerial photography and skylines and stuff and had pictures published in calendars and books. It was a great place to work. and basically get a career going and surviving over the last 50 years. So we've met a lot of people and a lot of photographers who I work with. Uh, some of them were sort of uh, in the same category as I did, but we were all friends and we belong to the same professional organizations. And it's just, it's been a great 50 years. I, I can't think of a better place I could have lived. What are some of the highlights in this exhibition. You had to narrow down your 76 to 25. I know a few that stood out for me. I'm curious if you have particular <laughs> favorites. Well, of course, the Hank Aaron picture stands out as probably, I guess, my most famously known photo. It's uh, also in the Baseball Hall of Fame now in a five by eight foot picture that they they put up but the other other pictures that I really cared about that I like was the Coretta Scott King portrait what's unique about the, the King portrait is that in most cases photographers like myself who are photojournalists we do a lot of uh, image making and uh, I was surprised when I looked at the contact sheet on that particular day that I photographed at Ebenezer Baptist Church there was only one frame 
that stood out. It's amazing when you set down 36 slides on a light table or you look at a contact sheet, pictures do pop up. And that one popped up on me on the, on the black and white contact sheet. And it's sort of re reminiscent of a photo that a Miami photographer shot when at the King funeral with uh, Coretta's daughter in her lap. The lighting on it was pretty much the same. This picture was without her, but the lighting was the same. And I said, wow, that, that sure reminds me of the picture that uh, was taken years before. So that's one, another one. And a, a third one is the fireman from the Doraville fire. He had a uh, just a, an exhaustion picture on his face. Uh, his name was Buzzard Sewell and from the northern suburb of Atlanta, and he was down there fighting the fire along with the other people. And that was actually my first, what I call big assignment. I, most of my work I do on, on my own of finding uh, stories to tell. And this one happened to be in my neighborhood. I lived in off of Stone Mountain Boulevard and uh, saw the smoke in the morning, went over there. And way back then, there were really no uh, media lines. I was able to wander around, actually got too close to the uh, gasoline fire and backed off and spent the day there uh, shooting. It's just some amazing pictures of amazing people. So he stands out to me. Wow. Yeah, you know, there are many Atlantans who may not even be aware of that Dorville tank explosion. All the more reason these photos are important for history. When you sort through your archives and negatives, are you ever transported back to that moment when you took the picture? Uh, truthfully, yes. I, I used to say I had a, a memory that I could remember every photo I ever shot. Well, that that's a long story. <laughs> that doesn't really work anymore. But when I go through my, uh, and, and of course the digital uh, pictures, uh, most of the important ones are on my website. Uh, and so I can review them easily. Yes, the stories come back. And as my wife says, I could I could talk uh, hours for, for almost every photo that I've ever shot. So, and those are the ones, you know, the ones that stand out are the ones that are important to me and uh, seemingly important to the people who are interested in archives of Atlanta. Hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is photographer Ron Sherman. How has your style of photography evolved through the years? Well, <laughs> I started as, as a high school photographer with a 4x5 crown graphic, just taking pictures like all kids do, uh, working for the school newspaper and for the yearbook. And also I was shooting uh, sports pictures for the Cleveland newspapers. There were three that I'd worked for in my, during my senior year. Then I went to RIT, Rochester Tech uh, for undergraduate and got exposed to some fascinating and fantastic instructors. And so I, I learned so much about just not being a editorial photographer or a newspaper photographer. And I knew there that I wanted to do something more than that, which was to become basically at the time a magazine photographer. But then uh, when I came to Atlanta, I had work, started working for corporations for their annual reports, for businesses. I did some volunteer work for um, Volunteer Atlanta and just, just did a, a variety of stuff. But the bottom line, and even today, is my editorial background. So if I'm doing work for an advertising agency, they've hired me because they like the editorial approach. The same thing with corporations. So one art director says, well, you're not the usual corporate photographer. I said, well, thank you. I hope that's a compliment. He says, it is because you have that little different view as an editorial photographer, and this is what the corporations liked. Then digital came along, which totally changed everyone's life in the photography profession. But what it did was it opened me up to the ability to make panoramic photos using multiple photos, putting together that look seamless. So it looks like it was shot in one frame. I have a picture of CNN Center that has 35 photos that 
covers the whole width and breadth of CNN Center. So that, that's a typical picture that I was able to do digitally. And it goes on from there because every new technique or every new thing that comes along, if you're interested in making the changes and doing things, it makes a difference in you professionally and also from a business perspective. With the internet, I was able to, rather than mailing photos to publishers and clients and, and anybody who needed my pictures, now off my website, I could send a picture of anything that I had to them in seconds and a guaranteed result, you know, instant uh, acceptance at the time that they got what they needed. So that's a big change in terms of the way I perceive my, my work and my profession. And now, Ron, we're living in a time when just about everyone who has a telephone <laughs> considers themselves a photographer. What advice would you give young photographers or photojournalists starting out now? Well, yeah, it's interesting because I've been thinking about that and it has totally changed everything, especially in the editorial area. One of the things that I sort of learned in, or did in high school was I numbered every one of my pictures so that when the kids wanted extra copies, I could find the negatives and make the prints and make a dollar picture or something like that. But that permeated through my whole career on those 35 millimeter slides. I found a company that could give me the ability to print multiple images. Every picture had information, the metadata on the names and the image numbers, whether it was on the back of a eight by 10 print or on a 35 millimeter slide. So that gave me the information that I needed. And I uh, would suggest that a photographer who is especially an editorial photographer, newspaper, magazine, to think about the future. I didn't think about it at the time, but I did it seemingly automatically ever since high school. So that all these pictures are organized in such a manner that they can give the client, whoever they're working for, the information they need and keep track of it and then they have to uh, learn their craft and find a way of being different or better than whoever else is out there i have a friend of mine who does drone photography more than he does regular still photography i have other friends who are doing both video and still photography so there are ways to do it but the uh, ability to easily get into a profession and make a living is, uh, I think, a lot harder today than it was when I started out. Photographer Ron Sherman. The Visual Art Showcase is on display at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center through September 21st. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our series of local musicians in their own words, speaking of music, today featuring the band Young Antiques, amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. 
Hello, my name is Blake Rainey, and I'm the singer-songwriter-guitarist for Young Antiques. Along with Blake Paris on bass and vocals and John Speaks on drums, we're an indie rock and roll power pop trio from Atlanta, Georgia. Our live shows are loud and energetic, sweaty and emotional, the way a good rock and roll show should be. The other Blake and I grew up in Cedartown, Georgia, and we started making music together at around age 11 or 12. My mother played piano and sang in the Baptist choir that we grew up in. We met John in the early 2000s, and the two Blakes and Mr. Speaks have been making music together on and off ever since as young antiques. My songs are a reaction to the things that happen around me. People, love, current events, emotions. I also get inspiration from a lot of great songmakers like Nick Lowe, Neil Young, Richard Thompson, Elvis Costello, Joe Strummer, Paul Westerberg, Shane McGowan. I cut my teeth on those guys at a very young age and I hope I'm cut from the same cloth. I try to write lyrics about subjects that haven't been overly explored like a love song that takes a different avenue in order to make it your own. Sometimes you gotta write a song that's been explored pretty well. The trick is making it unique, making it sound like you and not like somebody else. That's the hard part. film noir barroom ballad about two lovers running for safety in an authoritarian future. They find themselves ducking down dark alleys and into dark cinemas running from the law. Atlanta was an easy choice for us to call home growing up in small town Georgia. It offered way more opportunity and the music scene here has always been inspiring and supportive of us. It's a pretty good city for music. It's home. Our album that's out right now is called Another Risk of the Heart, and it came out, unfortunately, right in the middle of the pandemic, so we're still out there supporting it. We have a new record almost finished, and I hope it comes out next year. Our next live show is Friday, July 29th at the Star Community Bar in Little Five Points, and we'll be playing with Motor Exploder and the Bohannons. Blake Rainey of the band Young Antiques and our series Speaking of Music. 
Young Antiques is playing the Star Bar tomorrow, Friday, July 29th. And more information is on our website. Coming up, we'll visit with the youngest ambassador for the Met Opera, Leila Felder, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. In second grade, when other seven-year-olds were watching Scooby-Doo, Layla Felder was watching the opera La Boheme. Layla is the youngest Met Opera ambassador, and she has attended over a hundred operas around the world. Layla created the organization Kids Opera and Art Posse to encourage greater accessibility in the arts. When Felder joined me via Zoom this past March, she explained when her love for opera began. It started when I was two years old, and I don't remember actually falling in love with it. So what I know is from what my mom told me, it just feels like I've loved it for my entire life. But I was watching Sesame Street one day, and Denise Graves came on an episode and she was singing the Habanera from Bizet's Carmen to Elmo. Stars are twinkling up in the sky. It's time for you to go petty by. You're not sleepy, so I will try to sing an opera lullaby. And I, after it was over, I turned to my mom and I said, again, mommy, again. But this was before you could rewind on like live TV. And so my mom was wondering, like, what is this? And so she pulled out the DVD for the Amadeus movie and she flipped to one of the parts where they sing opera. And I wanted I just asked her to play that part over and over and over again. And then she went, oh, okay, so my kid likes opera. Neither of my parents like opera or liked it before I started. And, you know, my mom went looking and she found the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts and she bought me La Boheme, Carmen and the Magic Flute. And I watched those DVDs every day so much when I was little. I mean, to this day, I know those operas like the back of my hand and they're still my favorite operas. And my love just grew and grew and grew. I'm curious with your attraction to... Denise Graves singing on Sesame Street. Was it that you wanted to sing like her? No, it wasn't. I don't think could be. I mean, I still to this day, I can't sing. I think that honestly, I think it's something about Carmen. It's so many people's first opera, the one that really makes them see opera differently. And about the Habanera specifically, it's something about the minor key, it like the whole aria is just dripping with like this essence that just pulls you in with each note. It's like, it's hypnotic. And then by the time it's over, you just, you realize that you've all of a sudden been hooked on this thing Mm. and you didn't realize you were being hooked until you realize that there's a hook in you. (laughs) And I took singing lessons for a little while because I wanted to try to see if I could you know, make that kind of music and absorb that kind of music. And I wanted to understand opera better, but singing is not in the cards for me. <laughs> so was it the theater of opera that appealed to you? I mean, that too. I don't think it could have been it too. It was more visceral. Mm-hmm. But is it the drama, the full spectacle? What appeals to you about opera as an art form? I think that it's. It's such a beautiful combination of so many things. It's a feast for so many of the senses. For one thing, the music is so beautiful from like an, an instrumental perspective and a vocal perspective. There's so much to love and to fall in love with. But then when you're sitting and you're watching, 
you've got this visual feast of the set and the costumes and the potential for both of those things is infinite. I mean, you, like, the productions that people create, they're so immersive and they pull you into this world, but also the subject matter. I mean, some of the operas are historical. So when I watch them, I'm actually understanding more about history. Like there's a, a series of operas about three Tudor queens. And so when I watch those, I get smarter. And as I've watched <laughs> operas, I've learned so many life lessons about what not to do, but also how people used to live. And there's, for me, opera hits my heart in a way that no other art form does in the same way. There's a feeling I get when I watch opera, especially during you know the, some of the climactic ending scenes where it feels like my heart is breaking, but I'm also being filled up at the same time. It's, it's the weirdest feeling and I don't know how to describe it. Oh, I think you just did a beautiful job. Thank you. It's this crazy high and it's there's so many emotions that you're feeling at the same time. And I think it's this combination of so many elements in tandem with each other that just creates this experience that is unique to opera. Like you don't see it. I mean, you get an immersive experience when you watch a movie, but it's just it's just different. Hmm. And the sum is even greater than its parts for you, clearly. I would love to share a story with you about Denise Graves. I so admire her artistry. And the first time I got to speak with her was before an appearance here in Atlanta when she came up to WABE. She wanted to say, before we even began the interview, she wanted to say how grateful she was for radio and for the Met in particular. I don't know if she told you this story. You may have heard, but what she said was that at the age of 15, she lived in public housing in Washington, D.C. She did not come from means. She was, what do you call, I mean, back then we, we would have said she was going across the dial, you know, just tr on the radio. She was trying to find something she wanted to listen to. And she stopped when she heard opera. She was so entranced. She said she couldn't move. And that's when she said she knew she wanted to become an opera singer. What was all the more remarkable for her is later she learned that it was Leontine Price she was hearing on a Met Opera broadcast. She said, were it not for radio, she would never have had this connection to one of the most meaningful things about her life. Yeah. Wow. Has she told you that? No, that's the first time I'm hearing that story. So the importance of making opera and classical music and great art and dance and theater accessible to everyone is really a responsibility we should have. And I think that must have been in your little seven-year-old heart when you started your club. Would you tell us about Kids Opera and Art Posse? Yeah, absolutely. I was watching an opera production. We went to one of the broadcasts and I was sitting in the theater I don't remember which opera it was, but I remember looking around and realizing that I was the only person under 50 or 60 in that theater. And I was by no means a great mathematician, but I realized that by the time I got to that age, everyone else would be gone and I would be the only one in the theater. And I realized that that was not sustainable for the Met. 
it really disturbed me. I wanted to do something. And so I decided that I would try to figure out a way to get more of my friends into opera. And, you know, I was talking about it with one of my aunts and she suggested, oh, well, why don't you start a club? And that had never occurred to me. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So I started my club. I called it the Kids Opera and Art Posse. And I added the art part because I also really enjoyed going to museums when I was younger. And I realized this, a similar thing when I would walk around museums, they were so empty. And the people that were in it were never my age. And I realized that was not sustainable either. And so I thought about all of the friends that I had, and I thought carefully about which ones I knew either liked opera, liked art, or I thought would be open to trying both. Because it was very important to me that I didn't just start this club to be something that my friends and I did after school and just like talked at. I wanted it to be something meaningful for people. And I wanted the people that joined to really give it their all and to really be a part of it. I decided that I wanted to do docent-led tours at the High Museum, which we still do to this day. We do it once a month on Fridays. We go to Metropolitan Opera broadcasts on Saturdays. And once a year, we take a trip up to New York, which which is where I am now. Um, And we go and see an opera live in the Opera House. And the first year, I decided that we should all become members of the Met. So we, you know, we wrote each of us wrote a little letter to the Metropolitan Opera and we decorated the envelope sort of saying like, you know, hi, you know, the, we're the Kids Opera and Art Posse. We're from Atlanta. We we're, you know, we're signing up to be members of the Met. This is why we love it. And at this point, I think the members had seen maybe a couple of operas, maybe one or two or three. So they were able to write a little something. And I wrote an eight page letter writing about why I love the Met and every opera that I'd seen and my reviews of it. <laughs> Oh, wow. And how old were you at this point? I think I was eight years old. And so oh. we, we put them all together in an envelope and we sent them up. And I don't know who at the Met got it, but they showed it to the board and they were like, oh, my God, there are these kids in Atlanta and they love this opera house. And oh, my gosh. And so the first year we went up to see an opera, they rolled out the red carpet for us. They took us backstage they showed us this, you know, where the sets are made, where the costumes are made, where the wigs are made. We got to meet the general manager. And ever since then, the Met has been so wonderful to our club. They have completely taken us under their wing. And when I go to that opera house, it feels like my second home. And every summer, we also do a, a fundraiser called the Ring Cycle Endurance Walk named after (laughs) and we raise money for the metropolitan opera hd live in schools program which works to bring opera to public schools around the u.s so i think for that we've raised almost fifty thousand dollars to date wow now you mentioned the general manager peter gelb has said that you are no less than a profit for opera. Tell us, how did your association with the Met lead to your becoming a Met ambassador? Oh, so the Met ambassador thing was actually so random in how it happened. My mom and I were sitting in the car at the parking lot of where I used to do karate. And my mom brought it up to me. She was like, well, the um, ambassador for Atlanta is resigning. Would you be interested in being an ambassador? The general manager said that you could if you wanted to. And I thought about it for a second and I didn't really know what that entailed. So I asked and she explained and I just thought, yeah, that sounds super cool. Why not? So I said, yes. And I've been the ambassador for Atlanta ever since. And that's, it's just something that I can't remember not doing. And it's such a, for me now, it's become such a a part of going to see operas. One of my favorite feelings still is going to the movie theaters. And uh, we always get promotional materials that we put out at play settings and we set up a table outside. And so I always go in before the opera starts and I go and set out all of the promotional materials. And they run test footage before the opera. And they always run test footage of the same opera, but I love being in the quiet theater with no one there, just me 
and the opera broadcasts on the movie screen because there'd been two years where I hadn't been able to ambassador because, you know, they met shut down. So they weren't doing broadcasts. And so the first fire shut up in my bones was actually, I think the first HD transmission that I ambassadored for again, I ran into the theater because I could hear opera going from inside and it just, I just sat and I oh, it just felt so good. It felt so good. <laughs> So you were, what, 13 when you became ambassador? I think I may have been younger. I think I may have been around 11 or 12. Wow. Yeah. Leila, how are you working towards dismantling the way in which people perceive opera houses, concert halls, and museums? I share your desire to reduce the formality the elitism that's associated with the arts. How can we work harder at this? I think that there, at least for me, I found two, I think, big ways that makes opera and art and spaces like that more accessible. One is connection. For example, when you walk into a museum, there are placards next to art pieces that explain what the art is about, but they're pretty dry when you read them. And my generation, I mean, if you look at the things that we enjoy doing, I mean, my generation enjoys being on TikTok and that's, you know, it's people sharing themselves and part of their lives with other people. And so when we go to spaces like museums or concert halls or opera houses, we want connection on a little bit more of a, of a human level. And what I found out having someone do docent-led tours for us is that it gives people that human element that makes art feel a bit closer to them. There's someone to help talk to people and show people some of the beauty in the art and to make it make it feel less scary. It's almost giving someone an intermediary, like, no, it's okay, hold my hand, we're here, it's all right. And then the second thing is how you introduce someone to something like this. It cannot be like underestimated the power of someone's first opera or first art piece. I feel like a lot of times people think that, oh, they're all the same, it doesn't matter which one you go and see first. But for example, for opera, someone's first opera could make or break the way that they see the art form. If you take a beginner to go and see Wagner, they're not going to like it because no. it is so long. It is so heavy and it's so much like that is something that you do after you've had some time enjoying opera and you, mm -hmm. you've built up a love for it so that even if you don't like the Wagner opera, it doesn't wreck opera for you. A good first opera for a beginner would be a light Mozart comedy or a short Puccini drama, like something like La Boheme, something like Carmen, not too dramatic, but you know, dramatic enough to tug at your heartstrings. It has good music, it's got a good movement. And if you start there for opera with people, there's a, a bigger, a better chance that they will enjoy it. And then they'll be more open to coming back and stepping out of their comfort zone and trying something else. And same with art. If you start someone off on some really obscure, uh, kind of hard to understand art, if they're gonna immediately shut down because they look at it and they go, I don't know what it's trying to say. This obviously isn't for me, I'm just going to leave. You have to start a little bit, you know, baby steps. But that should not be confused with dumbing it down for someone because if you dumb it down for people, It'll also make people feel like you're condescending them and that you don't believe that they have the capacity to understand. No. Yeah. People should never be made to feel stupid if they're not familiar with something. And what you were saying about the human element really resonates. I also think what you were saying about the human element and the personal connection in your museum tours... I also think the Met was onto that with the HD presentations because intermission, we're taken backstage. We talk with singers. We hear that they're humans and they speak in our language. All of this is so important. Yeah. Now, 
You mentioned your love for visual art. You are also an actor (laughs) with a recurring role on the Golden Globe-nominated TV series, The Sinner. What is it like being part of that mystery thriller? Oh, my God. That was so much fun. I was only on season three, but that was my that was my first TV show appearance, which what a blessing for a first TV appearance. As soon as I got the audition, I fell in love with the character. She's very different from who I am as a person. She's much more reserved. You know, I'm an introvert, but I would say that I'm a lot more energetic and outgoing than she is. But I could really identify with some of her struggles with expectations and perfectionism. And I was just, I was over the moon when I got the part. And all of my scenes were with Matt Bomer. And he was such a lovely actor to work with. He was quiet, but he acted so well that it made me want to push myself even more to meet his level. And when you make art like that, when you're working with someone that's so good that it makes you want to push yourself. It's such a beautiful environment to be in. And just the the overall atmosphere of the set too was really lovely. Like you could tell that everyone wanted to be there, was happy to be there. It was a very healthy feeling working environment. And I loved being in New York. It was difficult missing so much school because I was missing basically every other week of school to fly up to shoot. But I managed to keep my grades up, which was good. And I I love acting so much. It makes me, acting is all about being human. And in order to be a good actor, you have to confront a lot of things yourself and work on yourself. And so I feel like as I become a better actor, I also become a better person. And I love that about this craft because it also means that it's something that I will never stop being able to learn about. It's something that will grow with me. And I also love all the skills I get to learn when I do jobs. Like there was one um, indie film that I booked and I had to learn how to do modern dance, which I've never done before. But I love that you get those experiences when you when you book jobs. Oh, wow. Now, I mentioned that you are a senior. Yes. What are your plans? Well, I've been accepted to Yale, which is super exciting. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Mazel tov, my goodness. (laughs) And uh, is it the drama school specifically? That's my goal for graduate school. But for undergrad, I'm going to, you know, Yale College regular. And I want to double major in theater and film and media studies so that I can focus on acting and screenwriting. And while I'm there, I also want to take, um, I've been teaching myself Korean for the past couple of years. So I'm going to finally get to take Korean as a class with people, which is super exciting for me because I can't wait to like talk to people in Korean actually. And then I also want to take either Japanese or Italian. I'm going to take one, one semester and the other, the other semester to see which one I like better and then go forward with that one as well. Okay, the Italian's kind of a (laughs) no-brainer given your love of opera and the musicality of the language. What sparked your interest in Korean and Japanese? (laughs) I'm I'm sure you've heard of the K-pop wave that's been... Oh, yeah. Yeah, so in ninth grade, I have two friends that had been trying desperately to get me into K-pop, and they finally found a group that I liked And that was the beginning of another rabbit hole for me. And at first I told myself, I'm not going to be that person that learns Korean. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to enjoy the music and watch the K-dramas. Fast forward to about six months into me loving Korean culture, I start learning Korean. I think that the language is so beautiful. And for me, language learning comes back to opera (laughs) because I grew up hearing so many different languages always in the context of music so that when I hear people speak other languages I'm never compelled by the usefulness of the language to learn a language I'm always compelled by the musicality in the language when it is spoken to want to learn a language and Korean has a really beautiful music to it when it's spoken it's such a 
it feels like when you look at the letters, when you hear someone talk, like it all feels like it's wrapped up really neatly into little kind of into little packages mm -hmm. and it has such a warm feeling for me. So that's where the, the love of the Korean language came from. And then Japanese came from anime. <laughs> Leila Felter, actor and Met Opera ambassador. More information about Leila Felder is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, today, unusual art installations are appearing at 10 MARTA bus stops in the metro Atlanta area. Several Atlanta poets will stencil their poetry onto the concrete of the bus shelters, but the poems are only visible when they're rained upon. The Rinse and Repeat project was created by Marta Artbound. To kick off the project, the poets will share live readings on Sunday in the south parking lot of the West End Marta station, from noon to 2 p.m. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the founder and CEO of Black Art in America, Nachi Dorsey, joins us with details on their new East Point Gallery and Sculpture Garden. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.